Are you ready to study the Bible this morning? We're going to put some outlines in your hands, so that will be facilitated. We'd like uh, to have each one have an opportunity to at least look on with someone else in this outline. So let's uh, hand them out as as, uh, expeditiously as we can. I've heard a good deal about Advent Hope over the past uh, three or four years. And I have to say that uh, it has all been true and beyond what I have been told. I'm really appreciating my weekend with you folks here. And I'm very, very glad this group exists on this campus. While they're handing that out, uh, just one brief announcement. If you would like to be on the mailing list of amazing facts for whom I work, Uh, If you would like to receive the magazine, The Inside Report, in your home, my wife will be at the doors of the auditorium as you leave today with some little white cards, some three-by-five cards. Just ask her for one of those cards and put your name and address clearly on it and give it to us sometime today and we'll make sure they get passed on to Amazing Facts. So that is if you wish to be on the mailing list of Amazing Facts, and receive the little magazine that is put out every couple of months called the Inside Report. That is our gift to you from Amazing Facts. Now our subject for this morning, what is sin? Why should we talk about that when what we want to talk about is how we can have victory over sin? It's a little bit like going to a doctor's office. When you go to visit the doctor, you go because something isn't quite right and you're not sure what it is. What is the most important thing the doctor can do for you as you visit his office? Correct diagnosis. What if the diagnosis is not correct? The remedy won't work. Diagnosis is all important in treating problems. And guess what? It's just like that in the gospel. If the diagnosis of the problem is wrong, the solution to the problem will automatically be wrong because it won't fit the real problem. The real question is, what is the nature of that sin for which I stand condemned in the sight of God? That sin for which I am lost? That sin for which I will go to hell? What is the nature of that sin? That's the only thing I'm interested in. I'm not interested in defining words or terms. I want to know why I will be lost. What will condemn me? Because if I know what condemns me, then I can apply a remedy to that problem. Last night, as I mentioned, there are two different Gospels. They are both built on two different definitions of sin. Two different ways of defining sin produce two different solutions to the problem of sin. And so you see those two definitions at the top of your sheet. We will look at them closely right now. Definition A, original sin. I've subtitled it sin as nature. That says that we are not condemned because we say wrong things or do wrong things or even think wrong things. We stand condemned in the sight of God because we happen to be born into Adam's world. And Adam happened to pass on to us a nature which is all messed up. The nature we have inside us pulls us the wrong way. It is full of all sorts of things that I think if we're honest, we would all wish wouldn't be there. But there our natures are. We're born with them. We live with them our entire lives. We can't do a thing about it. 
That's just the way we were made because of Adam's sin 6,000 years ago. And definition A says that's why we're condemned. That's why we're going to hell because we were born with bad equipment. That is the orthodox definition of sin throughout the Christian world. That is what most Christians believe sin to be, the sin for which we are lost. I'll give you a couple of samples of those who believe this particular definition of sin. Sinful man is not lost because he has committed sins, but because he is born of Adam and therefore stands condemned in him even before he commits sins of his own. That you have, there is definition A in its simplest form. We stand condemned because Adam sinned. Another person put it in a similar way. We make sinful choices because we are already sinners by nature. We make sinful choices because we're already sinners. We're already condemned. We've already started out on the road to hell. Then we make sinful choices in addition to that. That is definition A, and that is the position that you will find in orthodox definitions of sin throughout the world in Christian circles. That is what the bottom line is for most Christians. Now, definition B. Definition B, sin as choice, says everything that definition A says. We are born into a bad world. Adam made a terrible decision. We inherit a fallen nature. Our fallen nature is ugly. It is bad. But it says one thing differently. We are not automatically condemned because we inherited bad equipment. We are not automatically condemned because we happen to be born on the wrong side of heaven's railroad tracks. Oh, you didn't know you were there? You think any angel wants to trade places with you right now? Live right here? This is the wrong side of the tracks. This is the slums of the universe. And definition B says we are not automatically condemned because we happen to be born there. We are condemned before God. We march on the road to hell when with our own free will we say, I want to do it my way. I don't like your way. I'm going to do it the way I please. That's definition B. So you get the difference between the two? In definition A, sin is as automatic as breathing and we do it constantly. Can't help but do that because we have this nature within us. That is our sin. Definition B, sin is a choice of the will, a decision that we make. That's the difference. And this morning, I'm going to share with you my convictions for believing a very much minority view. Not just a minority view within the Christian world, but it is becoming a minority view within the Adventist world as well. And I'm going to share with you my convictions for why I believe it, and then ask you to make up your own mind. Not because of anything I say, but decide for yourself what God's Word says. And then decide for yourself. Because... This will make the difference between two different Gospels that you choose to believe, two different ways of salvation, two different solutions to the problem of sin. You notice in your outline I have said that there is a difference between evil and guilt. What do I mean by that? Well, some of you have in your own homes, or maybe I can even say in your parents' homes, some of you have a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about, the difference between evil and guilt. Because some of you have an animal in your home that if you think carefully about it, you really wonder why you chose that animal for a pet. Because if there ever was a schizophrenic animal, this one is it. 
It has two widely separated sides to its personality. There is one side that just rubs up against your legs every chance it gets, goes to sleep on your lap, just enjoys your company. That's one side to its personality. And your little cat even learns the rules of the house. It learns where to jump and where not to jump, where to sleep and where not to sleep, where to eat and where not to eat. And as long as you're watching, it obeys every one of those rules. But you just open the door to the out of doors and you watch the change that takes place in your lovable, sweet little pet. Whiskers are at full attention, tail at full alert. Why? It's going out into its world, the world from which its ancestors came. And inside its little brain, it's going out into the world it was made for. You see, in your house, the rules are too complicated. Its mind gets all cluttered up. It can't remember them all. But outdoors, the rules are very simple. There are only two that matter. Number one, you run from anything that's bigger than you. And number two, can you guess? You catch anything that's smaller than you. Life is simple. Your cat is not going out there to admire the sunset. <laughs> it's not going out there to smell the roses. It has something else on its mind. It's looking to take care of its life business. And it catches that little animal, that little mouse, that little gopher out in your backyard. And have you noticed it doesn't dispatch it quickly, humanely, painlessly instead it plays it plays with that little critter it catches it but that's not enough it throws it over its shoulder and hopes it'll run off again so it can catch it all over again and then throws it over its shoulder again and watches to see if there's a little life left so it can catch it all over again until some bad things start happening to that little mouse. It isn't able to run too well anymore. Things start to hang out and all sorts of ugly things are happening. You're watching the whole thing from your backyard. Ah, what do you do when your precious, lovable little pet comes marching up to your back door, feathers sticking out of all sides of its mouth, waiting to be praised for the good job it has done in your backyard? One more nasty songbird bit the dust. What do you do? Do you hold a little trial right on your back porch? Have a little jail cell all ready to go just in case the verdict is guilty? You don't do any of that? You brush away the feathers? You scold your cat a little bit? And you welcome that little killer back into your house? <laughs> You know what you've just done? You've made a distinction between evil and guilt. Right there on your back porch, you did it. What you saw in your backyard was evil. It was one animal torturing another animal to death with no compunction, no mercy, and no thought of kindness. Because in that little brain of your cat, that's fallen nature, that's what it got, wasn't the way Adam created, was, when Adam was created, that isn't the way your cat was created, but it's a fallen nature now. And you have decided that in that fallen mind of your cat, there is no room for a conscience. There is no knowledge of right and wrong. 
Your cat is not making distinctions of moral values. Your cat is just following instinct. That's fallen nature. It's fallen nature programs it, and it's doing what it was programmed to do by centuries of inherited descent. And you say, man, I wish he wouldn't do that. But I understand, here you are, and here's your nice food again. You treat it like it never did anything bad at all. No guilt, you see? No guilt. Evil, yes. Guilt, no. That's the distinction I'm talking about. There is a distinction. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's see if the Bible holds up that distinction. You've got some text listed there. Let's go to Genesis 2.17, the first command that God ever gave to his first created beings, and it didn't happen like God said it would. Isn't that amazing? Genesis 2.17. As Peter Gregory is fond of saying, the Bible says. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Did they eat? And did they die? That day? In the day that thou eatest thereof. We struggled with that. What does that mean? Well, it means they began to die. Yes, 900 years it took. Uh, they spiritually died? Well, maybe. It isn't very easy to understand what this means. In the day you eat, and it isn't talking about sleep death. It isn't talking about a little time of uh, going into the grave and being raised. It's talking about end of existence. In the day that you eat, you will end your existence. Well, why didn't they? Turn to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Revelation 13, 8. I am focusing on the last half of this verse, and I am reading from the King James translation. Some other versions handle this text a little differently. Revelation 13, 8 speaks of the Lamb, and of course the Lamb is Jesus Christ. And then it says something very, very important. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean? I thought he died 4,000 years after the world was founded. What is this talking about? And how does it help to solve our problem of Genesis 2.17? Now, take your outline again and look at the first of the Spirit of Prophecy statements. Why was not the death penalty at once enforced in his case? That's our question. Because a ransom was found. God's only begotten Son volunteered to take the sin of men upon himself and to make an atonement for the fallen race. Now, how did he do it exactly? The instant man accepted the temptations of Satan and did the very things God had said he should not do, Christ, the Son of God, stood between the living and the dead, saying, Let the punishment fall on me. I will stand in man's place. He shall have another chance. Let's look at that carefully. When did Jesus Christ step into the picture? When Adam and Eve came crawling back on their knees saying, Help us, we're in huge trouble now. Didn't wait for that, did he? The instant they sinned, they were in deep trouble. And they didn't even know what the trouble would entail. That instant Jesus stepped into the picture. He didn't ask their permission. He didn't wait for an invitation. He acted unilaterally. That tells me something about the character of God. God is a seeking God. 
He is a proactive God. He is searching for us before we even know that we're supposed to be searching for Him. He always takes the initiative. He will not force us, but He will always reach out first to us before we ever think of reaching out to Him. And then it says, Christ stood between the living and the dead. Who's dead? No one in the universe. Not a leaf has fallen from a tree. Adam and Eve are as good as dead. And he stands between the rest of the universe and Adam and Eve right now. And he says, no, there will not be a death today. There will be a death because God's word never fails. In the day you eat, you die. But the death will be my death. I will take the penalty. I will stand in man's place. He shall have another chance. Are you aware that we're drawing breaths right now because of what I just read? Not one of us would exist today. The whole world would be extinct long ago if Jesus Christ had not stepped into the picture. And we're not talking just about us. We're talking about the people that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ and those who, having heard the name, hate it. They are alive today because of what Jesus did in the garden that day. Every human being has an opportunity to live for all eternity because of Jesus' action that day in the Garden of Eden. And you know what? In a nutshell, that's why I don't believe in Definition A. Definition A says that we are born on a slippery slide to hell from the moment we're born. Definition A says that, yes, Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. He paid for Adam, but we still are paying something for it. We're still paying a penalty because Adam sinned. Now, I ask us a question. When Jesus pays for something, is it paid for, or do we pay a little extra? Do we have to pay in addition because Jesus didn't cover enough ground? That's what definition A says. We are paying for Adam's sin to some degree. We are condemned because Adam sinned. No, Jesus paid for Adam's sin. Now, could Adam and Eve still have been lost? Of course they could. How could they be lost? By rejecting the remedy. Jesus Christ says, I will stand in your place. Could they say, we don't want you? Didn't Cain say that? Isn't that exactly what he said? I don't believe in this lamb sacrifice business. I don't believe that we should have to pay a penalty. I want to do it my way. Cain rejected the remedy. That's why Cain was lost. Not because his parents sinned, but because he rejected the remedy. That's the way we can be lost today, if we reject the remedy. The Christian world believes that babies are born on a slippery slide to hell. I don't believe that's true. I believe that every baby into this, in this world is born with the cross of Christ right in front of him. And the only way that baby can ever get to hell is by trampling over that cross to get there. God is trying to make it hard for us to be lost, not easy. He's trying to make obstacles in the way of our going to hell. He is trying to make it difficult for us to end up forever lost, forever gone. That's what I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is, has stepped into the picture for all mankind. Notice the next paragraph. As soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. Have you heard people say every baby needs a Savior? Well, there is. Every baby has a Savior. Already, he stepped into the garden 
6,000 years ago. This phrase that every baby needs a Savior is one of the most misleading cliches that we have come up with in modern theology. Here is the Savior for everyone born into this world. As soon as Adam sinned, the Son of God presented himself as surety for the human race with just as much power to avert the doom pronounced upon the guilty as when he died upon the cross of Calvary. He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's why we are alive. All right. Would you, let's see what Jesus says. Turn with me. I'm not going to read all the text here. Turn with me to John chapter 9. John 9, a very familiar story. Jesus and his disciples are walking along, and they happen upon a man who was blind from his birth. And his disciples have a question. It is a deep theological question. Notice their question in verse 2, chapter 9. Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Catch their question. Their question is not, is this man a sinner? That's obvious, just look at his eyes. We don't have to have an answer to that question. What we want to know is how did he get this way? How did he get to this state of condemnation that is so obviously seen by his eyes? Did his parents do something very bad and that is why he is being punished? Or, have you caught the rest of the question already? Did he sin in that nine months in his mother's womb before he was born and therefore he was condemned at birth with blindness? That's their question. See, in Jesus' time, this was as difficult an issue, the nature of sin, as it is for Christians today. There were as many misconceptions then as there are today. Any defect, any physical defect, showed that a person was being condemned for that person's sin. Automatic. A leper condemned by God, not just physically having a problem, but under the wrath of God. Automatically. Just as much difficulty then as there is today on this subject. And notice Jesus' answer. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. What is Jesus saying? Don't confuse evil with guilt. Don't confuse blindness with sin. That's what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. His disciples want to know why, and Jesus says, you got the wrong premise. Don't make the mistake of assuming that this man is guilty in the sight of God just because he is blind. He says there's a difference between blindness and sin. And then notice what he says. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Right now, the works of Satan were being made manifest in the man. If Satan would have his way, every one of us would be born blind, guaranteed. That's the works of Satan. But Jesus says, wait a moment. And you're going to see the works of God. Now, how does Jesus show the works of God? Does he say, I forgive your blindness? Is that the way he handles the problem? No, not at all. He heals that man's eyes. He recreates those eyes. He makes them seeing again. That's how God handles evil. He doesn't forgive it. He heals it. He restores it. He recreates what is evil. There's a difference in the solution, you see, for what is evil and for what is guilty. Let's try another text, John chapter 5, where Jesus seems to contradict himself in two verses right next to each other. 
John 5, verses 24 and 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. According to the words of Jesus now, when can you have everlasting life? At what point? When you believe. Can that be right now? You can have everlasting life right now? Well, look at what Jesus says in the next verse. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead, the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Those are the ones who have accepted him. And they that hear shall live. Well, what is that? How can you have everlasting life and be dead at the same time? Didn't Jesus hopelessly contradict himself here? Or are there two different kinds of death with a world of difference in meaning between them? We fear the wrong death, don't we? We fear the temporary death that Christ can wake us up from like that, and we don't even think sometimes about the final death that is the real death that we should be concerned about. Yes, we can have everlasting life and sleep for a little while. That's what the Bible teaches. We have everlasting life today. It can't be taken away from us. We are safe in the mind of God no matter what happens to our physical bodies. And we have everlasting life. The sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world has two parts, evil and guilt. Evil leads to the, uh, the first death as a natural result Guilt leads to hell, the second death as the penalty for sin. Now, how does God handle these two problems? He forgives our guilt. He says, it's gone. I don't hold you responsible or guilty. What else is gone out of our future when guilt is gone? There's no hell in our future. We don't have to fear it at all. We have everlasting life. There is no fear of the second death for the one who has been born again and is walking with Jesus Christ. Now, does God handle evil the same way? Does he... Forgive it, take it away. You don't have any more evil to contend with? Not at all. We still struggle with evil around us and in us until Jesus comes. And when he comes, he will not forgive it. He will recreate this world, our bodies, and our natures. God handles evil by recreation, and that's when the first death disappears as well. He handles guilt by forgiveness. It is because of squashing these two concepts together, evil and guilt, that the Christian world and the disciples have a, for, have a wrong idea of sin and God's remedy for sin. Does a person who, is, who, has, who has evil in his life, like the blind man, does he need to be forgiven just as much as the person who goes out and cheats and steals? The disciples thought yes, and the Christian world thinks yes. We need to be forgiven for our infirmities, according to definition A according to the Christian world's definition. But only as we distinguish evil from guilt can we understand that God has two different ways of handling two different results of sin. And there the two Gospels diverge right at that point. Well, let's see. Let's find out if guilt really comes because of choice. I'm going to skip down a ways to John chapter 9, verse 41. John 9, 41. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And he says to these Pharisees, If ye were blind, meaning ignorant, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, 
therefore your sin remaineth. Were the Pharisees born with the same bad natures that you and I are born with? But Jesus says, if you truly did not know, you would have no sin. Light, knowledge, and a choice based on that light turns evil into guilt. Knowledge and choice of God's word. There is no sin for which we are condemned without rejection of light. That's the principle. Sin is rejection of God's word, of God's will. Let's try another text. James chapter 4, verse 17. The clearest one I have found on the Bible, in the Bible on this subject. It doesn't need a preacher, doesn't need a commentary, just a thoughtful reading. James 4, 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Isn't that simple? To the one who knows and does not do what he knows, what his conscience convicts him of, to that one alone it is sin. So what if a person is doing something wrong and he doesn't know it's wrong? It is not the sin for which he will be condemned. At best, it can be called a sin of ignorance. That's on the evil side. That's not on the guilt side. When a person doesn't know, there is no sin of condemnation. That's what we just read here. Now turn to James 1. The clearest definition of temptation I have found in the Bible. Most Christians, believe it or not, do not understand the difference between temptation and sin. Check yourself very carefully right here. James 1.14 but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The word lust means a desire for anything out of harmony with the will of God and it comes right out of our own natures. A pull toward the wrong. Drawn. Enticed. Well, that shouldn't be. That's bad. It's part of what sin brought into this world. We must be guilty for that. We must be responsible for being drawn the wrong way. That must be sin. That's what the Christian world says. Definition A says that's sin. To be drawn is to sin. To be drawn is to sin. Because obviously that's bad. It shouldn't be there. It's part of an imperfect world. And the Christian world says that is our primary sin. We are sinners by nature, therefore we make sinful choices. We are drawn, we sin by being drawn, and then we carry out those choices. That's definition A. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? That's temptation. We have to go to verse 15. For sin, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Four steps between temptation and sin. Drawn, enticed, conceive, and sin. Four steps. Definition A puts sin in step one, drawing. The Bible puts it in step three, conceiving. Which will we believe? Is it the drawing of our natures or is it the conceiving? We'll see what that means in just a moment. You see, a temptation takes two things. Are you personally interested in trying everything you see on the billboards as you drive along our highways? Just once to see what we'll feel like. Are you personally interested in trying everything you hear about and see on the evening news just once to see what it might feel like? 
Or are there some things that you hear and see that don't interest you in the slightest? You couldn't be paid enough money to do that even once. That wasn't a temptation for you. Might be for someone else, but it wasn't for you. You see, a temptation takes two things. It takes that outward stimulus out there, and it takes a drawing from inside our fallen natures to toward that stimulus. Temptation takes two things. But definition A says the moment you're drawn, you sin. No, the Bible says when you're drawn, you're tempted to sin. There's a huge difference between those two concepts. Because in definition A, sin is as constant as breathing. You are constantly being drawn toward wrong things. Therefore, you've got to have a gospel that forgives you constantly. And that's the most you can hope for, is constant forgiveness. That's the gospel that matches definition A. Constant forgiveness till Jesus comes for constant sinning without your even knowing you're sinning. But that isn't the gospel the Bible teaches or the definition of sin. Four steps, drawn from within, pulled toward it, even enticed by it. It's very attractive and you're pulled strongly. Neither of those are sin. There's one step more that has to take place before sin is reality in our lives. I'm going to let you read the rest of the text on your own. We're now going to look at the Ellen White statements one more time. In the middle of the first page of the Spirit of Prophecy statements, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 306, it is inevitable that children should suffer from the consequences of parental wrongdoing, but they are not punished for the parents' guilt except as they participate in their sins. Sure, we receive consequences by nature, by heredity, but not guilt, not guilt, unless we participate. And then down at the bottom of the page from Gospel Workers 162, light makes manifest and reproves the errors that were concealed in darkness, and as light comes, the life and character of men must change correspondingly to be in harmony with it. Sins that were once sins of ignorance because of the blindness of the mind can no more be indulged without incurring guilt. Catch the point there? There are things we do that are wrong, but we don't know they're wrong. That's not a sin that carries guilt because the, blind is, the mind is blind on that subject. But when the light comes, and of course here we have to remember, when the light comes means we must be ready to receive light. We can't be saying, don't tell me so I don't know. That is a choice not to have light which is a choice to reject God. When the light comes, when God in his own free will makes that light available to us and we reject it, we make a choice that turns evil into guilt and we are responsible. Turn to the next page, please. Second paragraph, Testimonies, Volume 5, 177. The sin of evil speaking begins with the cherishing of evil thoughts. Guile includes impurity in all its forms. Now, here's our very crucial sentence. An impure thought tolerated, an unholy desire cherished, and the soul is contaminated. Ah, now we're back to James 1, 14 and 15. Is it good or evil to have impure thoughts and unholy, impure thoughts and unholy desires come to our minds? It's evil. Wish we didn't have it. Be a great day when it's gone from us. 
But right now, that's reality and will be until Jesus comes. Don't expect it to go away when you receive the seal of God. We will still have our fallen natures, and we will still be pulled toward some sins, maybe not the same ones before, but sins like discouragement and self-pity and lack of trust in God and all sorts of things are going to pull at us at that time very hard from within our natures. As a statement is made about Jesus, even doubts assailed the dying Son of God. Guess what? Doubts are going to assail us plenty during those final hours of earth's history, right out of our own nature. An impure thought is temptation. Definition A says it's sin. Definition B says, no, it's temptation to sin. What turns the temptation into a sin? Tolerating and cherishing. Conceiving in James 1, 15. Step number three, conceiving. It is not your thought until you make it your thought. It is your nature that is producing that thought, but it is not your chosen thought. It is not your desired thought. It is not the thought you want to have until you make it your thought. You spend time with it. You hold on to it. You let it go around and around and around in your mind until it belongs there, and it becomes your character. You are not responsible for your nature, but you are responsible for your character. Your nature will end on this earth. Your character will go straight up into heaven. All God cares about is character. He can take care of nature just like a snap of his fingers, but character he cannot change without your choice. And you have to decide what character you will build. An impure thought tolerated and the soul is contaminated. Well, I'm going to ask you, don't go by your feelings here. You feel contaminated, don't you? When a thought comes to your mind that shouldn't be there, we dare not trust our feelings. Go by God's word. When God says you're contaminated, that's when, it, you're in, when it's real. Halfway down this paragraph, after the second set of ellipses, halfway down the paragraph, no man can be forced to transgress. His own consent must be first gained. The soul must purpose the sinful act before passion can dominate over reason or iniquity triumph over conscience. Temptation, however strong, is never an excuse for sin. Well, if temptation is sin, it's pretty well an excuse, isn't it? If we're sinning when we're tempted. But here it says temptation is never an excuse for sin. The consent of the soul must be given. I found another statement that I'll share with you that is not in your uh, outline. It's so clear. It's from uh, Signs of the Times, December 18, 1893. Before sin exists in the heart, the consent of the will must be given. Did you catch that? Before sin exists in the heart, the consent of the will must be given. Does a baby consent? No, not at all. Before sin exists in the heart. The whole Christian world says sin exists in the heart from the moment of birth. Before sin exists in the heart, the consent of the will must be given. Signs of the Times, December 18, 1893. Next paragraph. Said the angel, if light comes and that light is set aside or rejected, then comes condemnation and the frown of God. But before the light comes, there is no sin, for there is no light for them to reject. I ask, could the English language be any plainer on this subject? 
before the light comes, there is no sin. And then the next one I love very much. There are thoughts and feelings suggested and aroused by Satan that annoy even the best of men. But if they are not cherished, if they are repulsed as hateful, the soul is not contaminated with guilt and no other is defiled by their influence. Ah, isn't that great? God understands. He understands our problem, our condition. He understands we can't help some things. And he knows that there are thoughts and feelings that annoy all of us. They come right out of our own nature. And he understands. And he says, no, there's no contamination there. Yes, there is evil there, just like in your cat's brain. But there is no guilt for having a nature that you couldn't help being born with. God is trying to make this fair. He's trying to make it a level playing field. He's trying, not, he's trying to give every human being a chance. And he says, I understand your situation. Well, we visited the doctor's office. We've asked for a diagnosis. The diagnosis will determine the remedy. Constant forgiveness or healing and restoration. Which gospel? Which is the gospel we will choose? The answer you give to this question this morning, what is sin, will determine what gospel you believe to be the answer to the problem of sin. Two different gospels in the Christian world, and guess what? Those two different gospels are competing in a life-and-death struggle within the Seventh-day Adventist Church as I speak. These are life-and-death issues. The survival, not only of ourselves, but the Seventh-day Adventist Church is at stake on this issue. What is the right gospel? What is the true gospel? Which gospel is that narrow path and which gospel is the broad road? Remember, all the people on the broad road think they're going to heaven. There are two roads, two gospels, and right now the minds of every Seventh-day Adventist are being battered to their fullest extent by two different gospels, two different ways of salvation. Satan has brought this in as his last attempt to derail and destroy the mission of, seven, of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He is very happy for us to keep on keeping the Sabbath and believing all of our 27 doctrines if we just believe a false gospel. Very happy. And so this is a very crucial decision for us to make. It isn't just about sin. It's about the remedy for sin. Now I have good news and I have bad news this morning. The good news... We are not guilty because Adam made a terrible decision 6,000 years ago. I consider that very good news. The bad news, never again can you ascribe that outburst of temper to an Irish heritage. <laughs> never again can you say, the devil made me do it. Never again can you say, I'm only human. All those neat little excuses that we keep coming up with whenever we blow it, they're gone because I made a choice. It wasn't my parents' fault. It wasn't my her heredity. I made a decision, and I must take responsibility for the decisions I make. Now, this afternoon, all our time will be spent on the remedy. No more time on diagnosis. Now we want remedy. And, of course, the remedy is Jesus Christ, but guess what? Just like there is a bad understanding of sin, most Christians that come to church every Sunday and maybe even on Sabbath have never heard 
or met the real Christ. They've heard about a paper Christ, a Christ that has been written up by theologians to match a false definition of sin and a false gospel. They've heard of that Christ, and they worship that Christ, but the real Christ, the Christ who actually walked the streets of Galilee, they've never heard of that Christ, most Christians. So if you would like to know a little more about the real Christ, the only Christ that can save, by the way, paper Christ don't save. Real Christ does save. If you want to hear a little more about the real Christ, come back this afternoon and we'll talk about the remedy all afternoon long. No more problem. Now we want solution. We want to have what God says is the solution to our problem of sin. Would you stand with me for our closing prayer? Father in heaven, we are so grateful that Jesus Christ stepped into the garden 6,000 years ago, that he did something for the race that we are benefiting from today. We thank you for that gift, that chance for eternal life that you have given to us. May we receive the remedy and not trample over the remedy. May we accept it into our hearts. May we be children of the King from this time forth and forevermore for that we have everlasting life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.